This morning's reading, if you want to follow along in your Bible, is from uh, two chapters in John. It's from 1 John 28, reading from verse 28, reading through to 1 John 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen. Uh, thank you, Russell. And uh, as always, it's going to be helpful if you have your, your Bible open at the passage, making the point that this is not something out of my head. What we're trying to do today is allow the Bible to, to speak for itself to all our hearts. Now, there are, there are three things that are going on in this text, in this passage of Scripture today. And uh, hopefully they're, they're summarized in the title that we've got uh, up on the screen here. Giving clarity and confidence to the children of God. So the first thing is clarity. See, there's, there's quite a lot of confusion that's going on in the first century in the early church, just in the same way as there's a fair degree of confusion in our world today about what is important and what is the, even the message of the Bible, actually. Lots of different groups, lots of different opinions, points of view, voices being heard, and who do we know who to believe? Well, we have old John, you know, John the Elder, John, one of the original apostles, uh, who pens under the inspiration of God's Spirit this letter to his dear children in the, in, the early, in the early church. And the point that he makes is this, that first of all, you know, I was there at the beginning. You know, I, I listened to Christ's teaching firsthand 
I touched him, handled him. I, I was an eyewitness of all the things that happened. And so, and so here we are with a degree of clarity in what we're writing. Because it hasn't come down through Chinese walls or whispers that have been lost in translation. I'm giving you something directly. And, and I hope that gives you um, a degree of clarity about who Jesus was. That he was God who became man. About the nature of the gospel, as he writes in chapter 1, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, and about what it means to be a child of God. Now, that's the second thing, as you can see. And you probably picked up just how many times that phrase is repeated in this passage that's before us today. If I could just point them out to you very briefly. Right at the beginning, verse 28. And now, little children. You also find that in verse 1, 2, and 7. You've got the idea of being born of God uh, there as well. And you have children mentioned in verse 10. It's mentioned frequently in our passage. What does it mean to be a child of of God. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give a, a series of telltale characteristics of features that are characteristic of what it means to be a child of God. It's the, if you like, the first century DNA test. You know, if you're not quite sure about paternity, you know, they, 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 do, they do the DNA test, they, they, they work out, you know, on that basis. You know, if this really is a child of these parents. And, and what we're doing here, what we're looking at today, is we're looking at that very thing. There, there, are, there are five tests that we're going to be looking at today. Five tests that we have to take that will determine whether we are a child of God or not. I, uh, a couple of weeks ago... Uh, recontacted with a long-lost cousin. I think it must have been about 30 years uh, since I last saw him. And I shouldn't have been surprised, but I did smile when I saw him. Uh, and um, and I, I picked up on, on the way he did things and how he looked and how his top lip was and the way he spoke. And it was very reminiscent of his father, you know. And I shouldn't have been, of course, surprised at that. But it's the point that there are family features. And that is exactly what we're looking at. You see, there's a lot of confusion in the early church. There's lots going on. And, and there, there, there's even a group within the church here that is saying something about what it means to be a child of God, and it's confusing. And so he, he brings clarity to it in this passage. I mean, Jesus himself talked about that. Paul the Apostle spoke about that. He said, you know, out of your own number, there are going to become people who will lead you all astray. There will they'll be, they'll be wolves in sheep's clothing. You've got to be so alert and have insight and clarity. And, 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 and we'll look at that. But in addition to that, there is this whole idea of, of confidence. Yes, it comes as a challenge to us. makes us, makes us think. But there should be a degree of confidence. And you see that is in verse 28, that word actually comes up. 
Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And so for the believer, whose confidence at times might be a bit rocky and a bit ropey, we come to a passage like this. We look at the tests. We see if they apply to us. And if they do apply, if that blue line comes up or whatever, and you say, yes, this is, this is right for me, that, that gives us confidence that I am a child of God. And this is such an important point, isn't it? To be a child of God. To be born of God. To be born again, because as our Lord said to Nicodemus, unless we're born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. We need to be made new, to be new creations in Christ, to have the life of God through His Spirit within us that gives us that transforming change that will lead us to heaven one day. That's that's a very key and crucial point that we're looking at today, to have confidence as far as this is concerned. So let's, let's look at the first of these these tests. And it's found in verse number 28. The first test we need to take today is of whether we abide in Christ. Let me read it again to you. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, what it means is this. It means we stay with Christ. We don't walk away. We don't throw in the towel. We don't give up on Christ and the gospel. We don't say, that was a a phase in my life. I'm on to something else now. I've got a new hobby. I've got another interest We don't give up when things get difficult, when troubles come, when we're criticized, when maybe even persecutions come, perhaps more in other parts of the world than here. But when people are criticized because of their stance and their belief and their faith in Christ, and we say, well, I'm I'm not taking that kind of heat. I can do without that. We'll jack it in. A telltale sign that someone is a genuine and a true follower of Christ and a child of Christ, a child of God, is that they remain, they abide, they stay, they persevere, they keep on going. What does Scripture say? He who endures to the end shall be saved. This is, this is what uh, Bible teachers like to refer to as the perseverance of the saints. That those who are genuinely believers will persevere. And the reason that they persevere is because God perseveres with them. It's because God has his hand upon our lives and gives us the ability and gives us the strength to keep on going. One of the great passages that deals with this. You might want to look at it later on. It's in Romans chapter 8, towards the end of the passage, talking about the great purposes of God for his people, for his children. It says this, that those he called, 
he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And what shall we say to these things? There's this whole process. God calls, he foreknows, he justifies, he glorifies, he takes us through right to the end. Right to the end. He does it. And because his hand is upon our lives as his people, we will persevere. That is a telltale sign that somebody genuinely is a child of God. Stick with it. Don't cave. Don't give in. Second one. A genuine child of God practices righteousness. Now you'll see that one from verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, Christ is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Well, I mean, that makes complete sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ is righteous, well, if I, if I have his life, if I have been born of him, and I've got that life of his within me through the spirit that I receive at the point of my new birth, then a telltale sign that I belong to him and I'm his child is that I will live as he lived. And I will pra practice righteousness. It's not just about what I say. It's not about what I profess to be. It's what I practice. It's what I do. And that's always been the case as far as Christian people are concerned. Remember the famous story of, of Zacchaeus? You know, the little man that climbed the tree, the tax collector, who was ripping everybody off, fleecing his own nest. And he meets Jesus, and he's changed. And he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, give back, you know, what, what, I, what I took from people. Four times I'm going to give it back. He's a, he's a new person that just wasn't hot air, as far as the case was concerned. He practiced what he believed because his life had been changed. You look everywhere in the New Testament. You look at the story of the church of, of genuine Christian people. And their lives are changed. We're going to be studying James tonight and on Sunday evenings. One of the great points in the book of James is about practical righteousness. He's not bothered about what people say. You know, you say you believe in God. Well, good for you. You know, whoopie-doo for you. Even the devils believe in God and tremble. The thing that matters is what you do. And he says, faith without works. That's, that's a dead faith. If that's all you've got, it's dead. Genuine faith is a faith that does work. It produces stuff. It has to do that if it's a genuine faith. And you read through the book of James and you find he talks about how you have to tame your tongue. How you have to deal with people not showing partiality to some above others. It tells us how you have to love your neighbor. How you have to look after the poor. These are all practical points of righteousness that James is very concerned about. That we just don't have people who talk a good game or who preach a good game. 
It has to be the practice of righteousness. This is one of the key characteristics of being a child of God. We have to live our lives in a Christ-like way because we have his life. That demonstrates that we have his life within us. Are you getting on with the tests? Here's test number three to be handed out. Test number three, the child of God really appreciates God's love. That's verse one. Look, look at how John, uh, he can hardly contain himself, how he expresses it here. He says, you know, see what kind of love. Behold what, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that, that we should be called the children of God. I mean, I can't believe, he says, I can hardly fathom this, that God has loved me so much that he, he calls me his child. When I remember what I was like, I mean, you probably remember the story of John and his brother. They were called Bonarges, the sons of thunder. You know, they wanted to call down judgment on people who disagreed with them. They didn't have much time or much um, patience for folks of another opinion or point of view. And yet, he becomes known as the disciple of love. You know, the disciple that Jesus loved. This man who expresses these thoughts here. And it's he says, I've become his child despite what I was. And his love has touched my heart. And he says, and this, this, is, a, this is a key characteristic. You, you will know a child of God because they, they all have this. This is something that characterizes all of them. They think about God's love and it just overwhelms them. You know, it's something that just... It just really grips their heart. Some of us were studying in home groups the story of the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon this week. She came from the ends of the earth to see Solomon. She heard a report about his greatness and his wisdom. And she, I think, was a little bit cynical and wasn't quite sure if the reports were accurate or not. But when she came and she listened... And she tested him, and she observed everything that was going on. The scripture says there was no more breath left in her. And she said it was a true report. And in fact, she said, the half has not been told me. You know, the report was good, but when I see it for myself, it wasn't only, it wasn't even half of, of, of how good it was when I see you for myself. And Jesus in his day said, by the way, a greater than Solomon is here among you. And, and, and that's how, that's how as, as the children of God, we ought to be reacting and responding. Think of, of the greatness of Christ and how he has loved me and he cares for me and he's given himself for me. And, and you know, surely that must touch our heart. I'm pretty sure that online today, uh, Xander and Sheena Tate will be watching this service. I, I couldn't help but think of him when I, when I was on this point. I always think of the hymn that he, he frequently gives out. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. How marvelous, 
how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. You know, that the Son of God should love me, and He should give Himself for me. That's what Paul said in the book of Galatians on one occasion. And yet the reality is for so many people throughout our world today, it's nothing. It doesn't penetrate. It just means nothing at all, the love of Christ. But it does for the child of God. And it's a telltale quality and a characteristic. Look at how he goes on actually uh, to talk about it. It says, see what, what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. It's love of a different kind. We can't, we can't equate this with even parents' love for their child, a wife's love or a husband's love for their spouse. It's a different kind of love. It was, it was a love that really wasn't motivated by anything that was attractive in us. It was a love that, that, that came to us when we were totally undeserving of it. Scripture says that scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man somebody might dare to die. But God commends his own love, his own kind of love towards us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that's it. That is the love of Christ that should touch our hearts. There's one occasion when Jesus' friend Lazarus died and the people observed him in the graveyard as he was weeping and they said, behold how much he loved him. And it was a, it was a demonstration, of course it was, of Christ's love. But the greatest demonstration of Christ's love is when he gave himself upon the cross for us. Laid down his life for our salvation. And, and that, if that doesn't touch your heart, if that doesn't move you, well, you failed the test. Test number four to be given out. The child of God is motivated by Christ's return. You see that one um, in verses three, uh, 2 and 3. Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let, let me read verse 2 as, as well, actually. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. When he appears, it says, when Christ returns, we shall be like him. We're the children of God now. But, and that's pretty good. But, you know, it's, it's almost inconsequential to what we shall be when he, when he appears. Christian person, can I encourage you with this? That when, when Christ appears, remember 
that you will be like him. Now, what does that mean? It means that the frailty and the dishonor and the corruption at times that characterizes us regrettably, that will all be a way. There will be a massive change. In fact, let, let me try and put it the best way I can by asking you to turn to First Corinthians chapter 15, which is where I've been kind of half quoting from. First Corinthians uh, chapter, 14, uh, chapter 15, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown? It's talking about burial. Being sown. Burial is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Let me take you down to verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what it means to be like him. That is the change that will take place. And, and what he's saying is this. Whoever has this hope, they purify themselves, even as he is pure. They think about being with Christ. And seeing him, did you notice it, it doesn't say as he was, but seeing him as he is? If we had seen Christ as he was, with the crown of thorns, as he was upon the cross, rejected and abused by people. No, no. We will see him as he is, the lamb upon the throne, crowned with many crowns, the object of the massed choirs of heaven's praise and his great glory, the king of glory. We will see him as he is. And, and when that happens, well, as we anticipate that, the child of God purifies themselves. They think about his coming, and they don't shrink away from that. You remember that was already said away back in the first verse we read. No, no, they have confidence at his coming. I belong to Christ. I won't face judgment. I won't be condemned as an unbeliever. But I want to please him. I want to be found ready I want to be busy in the master's business. I don't, I don't want to be asleep. Remember like the parable of the, the, the virgins that some of them fell asleep before their master, the bridegroom came? No, no. To be, to be ready and to use that coming of Christ as I long for it and as I anticipate it as being a motivator for how I live my life. And so you think about the coming of Christ today. Does it motivate you? 
Does it do anything for you? Well, that is a test that he says. Marks a child of God. Final one, final test, test number five. The child of God, and this is the other side of the coin of one that we've already spoken about. If on the one hand, a test is that we practice righteousness, he makes quite a big deal, actually, from, chapter, uh, from verse 4 down to verse 10, of the fact that a child of God does not, does not make a practice of sinning. Now, we all make mistakes. We all fail. But what he's talking about here is the persistent, habitual practice of sinning. That is not characteristic of somebody who has the life of Christ. And there are a number of things that he says about sinning here that really makes this point not just in a positive way, but in this negative way. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 4 rather, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's a number of ways to define sin. It's missing the mark, missing the target, missing the standard. But it is also lawlessness. And we're talking about the law of God here. The Ten Commandments, which are a, an extension of, of God's character, really. And so you go, you go through all of them about lying, about, about stealing, um, about adultery. And, and, of course, we remember the way that Jesus taught these things. He says it's not just a matter of, of the physicality of these things and as, as the outward appearance. It's the heart. It's how we look upon people. It's how we think in our hearts. And we go down them all, loving God with all our heart and soul and mind about coveting things. And we try to match our life up to all of them. And, and sin is lawlessness. It's breaking the law of God. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning is persistently breaking the law of God. And so we can mark whether we are persistently sinning or not. <clears throat> And then he says three things that I want just very briefly before I finish about what Christ appeared, past tense, to do as far as sin was concerned. We talked about his appearing in the future. Now, the word appeared appears regarding the past. Now, look at, look at first of them. Verse 5. <clears throat> You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. The perfection, the sinlessness of Christ. That's why he appeared. That's why he came. He came to take away sin, our sin. So it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up at all. That someone says they're a child of God and yet they persist in the practice of sin. Because Christ came to take away sin. Point number two. Verse, verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Harsh. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
So when he came, this is another way of looking at things. The devil, who is not a figure of fun, but is a malignant, wicked, evil presence that manipulates all the wrong and evil and tragedy in the world that we are in and laughs when people blame God for all of these things. It is the devil, and he's been a liar since the beginning. And and what the Son of God came to do It was to destroy his work. And he destroyed the power of death at the resurrection. And finally, Satan will be consigned to the lake of fire where all those who persist in sinning will also be consigned. It doesn't make any sort of sense to say that I follow Christ as his child when I persist in sinning because it's the devil who sins. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It is all very logical. And then the third point is this. From verse number 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. God's seed. That's another way of talking about the anointing that we were referring to last Sunday. God's spirit, God's life. And so by definition, if God's life is within me, I will not habitually persist to practice sin. I can't do it because it's God's life who is within me. Again, it doesn't mean to say that we won't make mistakes occasionally, but the, the thrust, the direction, the characteristic of my life is not to keep on habitually practicing sin. And these are the five things, as it says here, verse 10, that make it evident, evident that I am a child of God or not. So this morning, for clarity and hopefully for, for comfort as well. And for confidence, we look at these tests. We apply them to our hearts. Because there's no greater or important subject for us to consider this morning than whether I am a child of God, have been born again or not. Take the test. See how you get on. May God bless his word to our hearts. Happy to have a discussion at the end with anyone uh, who wishes to. Let me pray and then we'll have our final hymn. Lord, thank you for your word with all its clarity. Um, It comes to us in the midst of all the confusion of so many voices. It comes to us with authority. It comes as concerning our Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to apply these things to our hearts. We pray that for all of us, it will come as something that gives us confidence that we are your children, that we have your life, that we are born of you. And so we pray that your Spirit touches all of our hearts just now as we just reflect on your Word. May we take it to heart and help us, Lord, in our hearts, not just to walk away, but to respond and to do what is necessary as we think about what we've listened to, as we ask through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in whose name we pray. Amen.